Alternative practice number four, embodying reciprocity. The following quote is by Julie Bell. Research is marriage, not a one-night stand. In this module, we're going to explore the concept and practice of reciprocity. You may remember that in an earlier module, I suggested reciprocity as an antidote to extraction. Reciprocity is another one of those terms whose definition can get muddled and synonymized with related concepts like interdependence, relationality, and reconciliation. In going back to the etymology or origins of the word reciprocity, we see that it's derived from the Latin reciprocus, which means moving backward and forward, alternating, mutually exchanged or exchangeable. And the suffix, IYT, refers to the state of being something. In other words, reciprocity refers to the state of moving backward and forward, alternating and mutually exchanging. With this in mind, this module unpacks two key concepts, including knowledge as a gift versus a commodity, and research as a practice of visiting. The following is a conversation that never happened between myself and Potawatomi scholar and botanist Robin Wallkeimer. The dialogue features quotes from her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants as well as my own reflections in trying to connect her teachings to the practice of research. Robin. It's funny how the nature of an object, let's say a strawberry or a pair of socks, is so changed by the way it has come into your hands, as a gift or a commodity. Madura. I wonder how the way knowledge or data comes into our hands changes how we treat it. Do we feel more or less of a responsibility over knowledge that we gain from anonymous surveys versus one-on-one -on -one interviews versus community consultations? Do we treat the knowledge we gain through these research engagements as a gift or a commodity? Robin, I have no inherent obligation to those socks as a commodity, as a private property. I have paid for them and our reciprocity ended the minute I handed her the money. The exchange ends once parity has been established, an equal exchange. They become my property. Madura. What's the current equivalent for researchers in terms of the transaction that absolves us of any obligation to research participants or the knowledge that they've shared with us? What's the transaction that makes what they share with us quote unquote our property? Is it the signing of a consent form? Is it the handing over of a meager honorarium or a bus token or a gift certificate? Robin. A gift creates an ongoing relationship. As the scholar and writer Lewis Hyde notes, it's the cardinal difference between gift and commodity exchange that a gift establishes a feeling bond between two people. Madura. What is our relationship to research participants or communities after our research engagements with them? Is the sharing back of findings, however many months or years later, just a token? Or is there an element of ceremony to it? How connected do we feel to the people and communities we engage in research? Again, do we treat the knowledge we gain through research participants as gifts or as commodities? Robin. 
That is the fundamental nature of gifts. They move and their value increases with their passage. The more something is shared, the greater its value becomes. This is hard to grasp for societies steeped in notions of private property, where others are, by definition, excluded from sharing. Madhura, in what ways do the norms within research and academia exclude us from sharing the knowledge we gain through research? Do we believe that research and community knowledge increases in value as it's shared? Or do we actively take steps to limit the ways in which it can be shared? If so, do we create barriers to access because we believe this knowledge is powerful and don't want it to spread? Or because we believe that exclusivity increases the value of this knowledge? Do research participants from whom this knowledge is derived have a say in how and with whom and under what conditions their knowledge is shared? Is there knowledge that is gained through research that we choose not to share because it challenges our own or our organization's agenda or strategic plan? And if and when we share this knowledge, do we also share credit and royalties with the people and communities from whom it's derived? Robin, from the viewpoint of a private property economy, the gift is deemed to be quote-unquote free because we obtain it free of charge, at no cost. But in the gift economy, gifts are not free. The essence of the gift is that it creates a set of relationships. The currency of a gift economy is, at its root, reciprocity. In Western thinking, private land is understood to be a bundle of rights, whereas in a gift economy, property has a bundle of responsibilities attached. Madhura. What if a consent form was framed less as a bundle of rights afforded to the researcher in terms of what they can do with the data collected, and more as a bundle of responsibilities that the participants bestow upon the researcher in terms of caring for, protecting, uplifting, and sharing the stories that they've shared with them? Does paying research participants fairly mean that we as researchers no longer have a responsibility to them? Is there a world in which we can normalize paying for the labor that participants extend, but not own the knowledge that they share with us? Or, even in research engagements when money is not exchanged between researcher and participants, and knowledge is shared for quote-unquote free, can we normalize that knowledge as a gift rather than as a commodity? If so, what are the set of relationships that this gift creates, and what responsibilities do they confer upon us as researchers? What might the back and forth, the alternating, and the ongoing mutual exchange between researchers and participants look like in a world where reciprocity is centered over extraction? This question marks the end of the conversation that Robin Walkheimer and I never had. As you might have noticed, my contribution to the dialogue included more questions than answers. These are the questions that we as researchers may not be used to asking, and I think that's exactly why they are worth exploring. One of my favorite strategies for building the future world we want now is to start asking different questions than the ones we're used to asking. The following reflection prompts are intended to help you work through your own relationship to reciprocity, as well as the beliefs that you hold around it. 
I invite you to pause after each question and note down any immediate responses that emerge before diving deeper into this exploration. Do you believe that the research engagements that you've designed to date have been sites of mutual exchange between researchers and research participants? How do you think the participants you engaged would answer this question? Do you experience the knowledge you gain through research participants as gifts or as commodities? How do you distinguish between the two? How does the way that a piece of knowledge or data comes into your hands change how you treat it? For example, does the responsibility that you feel toward data gathered through anonymous surveys feel different than the knowledge gathered through a one-on-one interview or a community conversation? What is your relationship to research participants or communities after your research engagements are complete? Are your research engagements isolated events or are they part of a broader ongoing relationship building effort? What considerations do you take into account when deciding how, how much, and with whom you share the knowledge that emerges from your research? I invite you to pause here and take some time to unpack your responses to these questions before moving on to the next module. In this section, we will continue our deep dive into reciprocity, and in particular, reciprocity through the act of visiting. I want to explore reciprocity through the act of visiting, specifically in the ways that Michi Sagik Nishnabe scholar Leanne Betosamo Sake Simpson describes it. In her book, As We Have Always Done, she shares that, quote, Visiting within Nishnabe intelligence means sharing oneself through story through principled and respectful consensual reciprocity with another living being. Visiting is lateral sharing in the absence of coercion and hierarchy, and in the presence of compassion. Visiting is fun and enjoyable, and nurtures the intimate connections and relationship building. Visiting is the core of our political system. Leaders visit with all members of the community. Our mobilization, Tecumseh and Pontiac visited within and outside of their own nations for several years before they expected mobilization. And our intelligence. People visiting elders, sharing food, taking care. End quote. The practice of visiting, as Simpson describes it, presents as an antidote to extraction for several reasons. Firstly, it puts the researcher and the researched on more equal footing. Visiting involves both parties sharing of themselves, rather than just the participant sharing their stories. It requires shared vulnerability between both researchers and the researched. It also requires that researchers examine themselves and their personal lineages in the same way that research participants are often asked to reflect on and share their lived experiences around the research topic. Visiting also emphasizes enthusiastic consent in a way that most research engagements do not. Visits are welcomed rather than imposed or incentivized. You choose to engage in a visit. Last, and perhaps most radical, Simpson describes visiting as fun and enjoyable and connective. How often do research participants walk away from research engagements feeling like this? What if the goal was to design research engagements as acts of care, connection, play, and healing, 
Going back to the words of Robin Wallheimer, how would our relationship to the knowledge gained through research change if it came into our hands through intimate acts of care rather than through detached acts of extraction? The lineage of the Nishnabe practice of visiting dates back to the Michi Sagik Nishnabe origin story. Simpson shares that, quote, In Nishnabe practices, our first intellectual, Nana Bush, physically walked the world twice after it was created. Nana Bush did not walk the world through a liberal lens to help, quote, those less fortunate, end quote. Nana Bush did not walk the world to see how natural resources could be harnessed or how people could be exploited into a particular economy or political system. Nana Bush walked the earth to understand their place in it, our place in it, to create face-to-face relationships with other nations and beings, because Nana Bush understood that the Nishnabe, that we all, are linked to all of creation in a global community. On the epic journey around the world, Nana Bush visited with different human and non-human nations that make up our world. They shared and generated story, ceremony, song, and action. They carried with them the political and spiritual practices of the Nishnabe as they visited different nations' homes. They created a collective consciousness and a set of intentional relationships with each aspect of creation, which they passed on to the Nishnabe. End quote. What I appreciate about the story of Nana Bush is that they visited for the sake of visiting, to understand their relationship to those around them, rather than to impose a particular set of beliefs or accomplish a particular agenda. I appreciate that knowledge generation in the context of visiting is relational. It is co-created, as Simpson described, through story, ceremony, song, and action. There is an element of ritual to it. What would it look like if research engagements felt like rituals? Visiting, as Simpson describes, both takes time and doesn't happen on a timeline. It's ongoing. It's not that a particular project motivates the building of relationships through visiting, but rather that visiting is a way of moving through the world, and when there is a cause to mobilize around, the relationships that have been built through visiting help us move toward it together. Visiting also forces us to become intimate in a way that makes it harder to extract from each other. Extraction, or taking something in a way that severs it from the relationships that give it meaning, requires a level of dehumanization. This dehumanization, which positions the other as quote-unquote lesser than, less worthy of safety, belonging, and dignity, is one of the ways in which we justify the harm we cause. On the flip side, being in relationship with the other breeds nuance, allows us to see each other as complex, dynamic beings, and makes it harder to judge and punish those with whom we don't agree. While visiting doesn't guarantee that we will always agree or see eye to eye, it gives us the muscles, context, and shared history through which to hold and move through that tension when it emerges. What would it look like to normalize visiting as a practice within the world of research? Research projects are often implemented within the constraints of the amount of funding and time allocated for that work it's likely that we'd come up against, quote, there's no time for visiting. What if there was? What if visiting was an overhead responsibility, similar to overhead costs like rent, utilities, and insurance, as a part of a larger shift in organizational culture towards centering reciprocity? 
What if visiting was built into budgets and resourced consistently and over time? What is one small step we can take in the direction of uplifting visiting as not only a legitimate, but a crucial step in the pursuit of non-extractive R&D? If we don't feel like we can visit with a community or a set of people whom we are hoping to engage in research, that in itself is an important point of reflection. Is it because we feel we won't be welcome? Why might that be? What is your relationship to this community or set of people outside of your role as a researcher? What is the relationship between your respective identities, privileges, and lineages? And what responsibility does that confer upon you as a researcher? What judgments, if any, do you have around visiting? Perhaps it feels like a waste of time, like it's not connected to a tangible outcome, or like there's no way to know if you're doing it right. Any discomfort or resistance we experience around these questions is data that is worth examining. Drawing on Robin Walkheimer's description of a gift economy and Leanne Betosamoseke Simpson's description of visiting as a Anishinaabe practice, I'm asking myself, what if we treated knowledge gained through research as a gift rather than as a commodity? What if we designed research engagements as experiences we are gifting to ourselves as well as the communities we are engaging? How might we make them fun, enjoyable, and connective? What if research engagements were an alternating back and forth, a mutual exchange between researchers and the researched? What if visiting was a legitimate, resourced, and ongoing way of gathering, processing, and sharing knowledge? The following reflection prompts are intended to help you work through your own relationship to reciprocity as well as the beliefs that you hold around it. I invite you to pause after each question and note down any immediate responses that emerge before diving deeper into this exploration. What is your first impression of research as a practice of visiting? What parts of it resonate? What parts of it do you experience resistance to? What would have to change about the way you or your organization currently approach research in order to be able to engage in research as a practice of visiting? What do you think it would take for you to experience the process of research as fun, enjoyable, and connective? What do you think it would take for the people and communities that you work with to experience the process of research as fun, enjoyable, and connective? I invite you to pause here and take some time to unpack your responses to these questions before moving on to the next module.